Let's pray before we get into the word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. This is exciting to think about Romans and Malachi and to think about our oneness and union with Christ and to even think about Christmas, even months from now, knowing that you did extraordinary things in this room even just nine months ago or so. And so, Father, we, we praise you. We thank you. And would our study in the book of Romans, would our study today, would our study these next seven weeks, oh, Father, would they be fruitful? Would they be beneficial? Lord, would our study give you all the honor and all the glory because all the glory belongs to you for the sake of Christ's name and in Christ's name we pray now amen well I love handwritten letters I remember as a child checking the mailbox and it being one of the highlights of the day 4 p.m. A man or a woman, a U.S. postal worker, would be driving a big blue truck, and, and he or she would stop there on the street at the edge of the street and would put the mail into our mailbox. And I remember being very excited to check the box to see if maybe, just maybe, there was some mail for me. Now remember, no mobile phones, no text messages, no email, so keeping up with family meant putting your cursive skills to the test. It meant finding an envelope and putting it in and writing out an address. It meant licking and then sticking a stamp to the upper right corner and then putting that mail into a mailbox. Now, writing was a joy, but opening that mailbox up and finding a letter written to you by a loved one, by a family member or a friend was exhilarating. The process could take a week or even more between you putting a letter in, them receiving it, and then sending one back. But hearing from your friends meant everything. Well, we don't do this much today, but a kind letter in whatever format it comes in from a loved one is incredibly encouraging. Did you know that the New Testament is made up of a number of letters, most written by the Apostle Paul? He writes letters to individuals, writes letters to churches, or even a group of believers in a specific city. By the time of Paul's writing ministry, he was a faithful church planter. He was a well-known leader in the Christian church. I mean, can you imagine receiving a letter from him? Well, today we begin a study through Paul's personal letter to the believers in Rome. This letter would be read to all the believers. It would be cherished by all, quite possibly read again and again. Not just in Rome, but as the inspired word of God, its significance would be worldwide. To consider its impact, let's just take a brief journey through history. Well, the year was 386 A.D., a North African man raised by a pagan father and a Christian mother was devoted to a sinful lifestyle. He even had a child out of wedlock. But mom kept praying. Mom kept getting encouragement from her pastor, the great Bishop Ambrose of Milan. And eventually, this young man began to see his sin, but he loved his sin, oh, so much. And so he had this tension. Maybe you can relate to this, either in previous years or maybe even now. When you see your sin, you know it's sin, but oh, it tastes so Good. Well, this man felt that. Now in Milan, one day he's walking in a garden and he hears what sounds like some children playing a game, shouting a phrase that in Latin means, take it and read. 
take it and read. He goes back to a friend. He picks up a Bible, and he plays a, a game. I don't know if you've ever played the game. I have my, my letter to the Romans here, but maybe you've played this game before. You take out your Bible, right, and you flip out, flip all the words. You flip the pages. You flip through the books, and you close your eyes, and you put your finger down. You know this game? Some people call it Bible roulette. You, you put your finger down, and that's going to be the word of the Lord to you that day. Now, I don't recommend that. Not recommending that, but Essentially, that's what this man did, and his fingers landed on Romans chapter 13, and these were the words that he read. Wake up from your sleep, walk properly in the daytime, put away your sexual immorality and drunkenness, rather clothe yourself with Christ and seek not the desires of your flesh. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit opened up Augustine of Hippo's heart, and he came to faith. Well, let's fast forward a little bit in history over a millennia. Let's go to uh, 1,100 years later. It's the year 1515. There's a brilliant Augustinian monk in Germany who studied Augustine at university. He was aware of his sin. His problem was he had no idea how to stand before a holy God. He tried to be better than other monks. He, he tried to do more than other monks. He slept without blankets. He would walk up the monastery steps on his knees, one knee at a time. A lightning strike near him shook him, but what shook him even more was reading in the Bible as he prepared for a lecture at university. Romans chapter 1, verse 17, that the righteous shall live by faith. He read that along with a notation from Augustine. That notation was about the righteousness of God. And the German monk Martin Luther was saved and found assurance of salvation and found how he could stand before a holy God, that it was not anything he could do, but it was what God did, that it was an imputed, it was a given righteousness, a declaration of righteousness from God to him as a gift. Two years later, he leads out in the Protestant Reformation, starting there on October 31st when he nails 95 theses or points to a church at a, a door in Wittenberg, Germany. In particular, he's protesting salvation by works, but more specifically protesting a practice called indulgences, where you could pay money to free loved ones to go to heaven, those that had died, to, to free them to heaven. But Luther understood something. Luther understood that salvation was only by faith alone, in grace alone, in Christ alone. And that sparked a protest not just there in Europe, but around the world. Well, how about the year 1738? Let's fast forward this time just 200 plus years. We move from Germany over to England. Here we find a man ordained to the ministry, a man who even served as a missionary for a couple years to the Americas. But one day he walked by a church and he heard the Bible being read and the Bible being taught and he listened in. What was being read? What was being taught? Well, it was Romans and in particular, along with that was a preface to the letter of Romans written by Martin Luther 200 years earlier. And God used that to convert John Wesley's heart. John Wesley went on to be an incredible pastor and leader. And so we see from Augustine to Martin Luther to John Wesley, Romans was used to save their souls. 
William Tyndale, the great Bible translator, said, This letter is the principal and most excellent part of the New Testament. Reformer John Calvin wrote, When anyone gains a knowledge of this letter, he has an entrance open to him to the most hidden treasures in the Scriptures. The great doctor Martin Lloyd-Jones, famous London preacher in the 1950s and 60s and hero to the great and worldwide famous Redeemer Dubai pastor Chris Lejeune, led a Friday night study at Westminster Chapel, every seat full, for 372 sermons on the book of Romans. Now, I wonder if I should try to break that record here in Dubai. At that pace, with a few breaks, I think we could finish by, say, 2040. My Greek professor, the late Harold Honer, said, to know Romans is to know Christianity. And my first pastor, Pastor Tommy, said, Romans is the greatest letter ever penned. And so as we approach 13 years as a church, it's time, it's time for me to say at last, open your Bibles to the letter to the Romans. And let's look at an amazing letter, an amazing epistle. A couple prayer requests I have for us as a church as we study, maybe not for 372 weeks, but, uh, but quite a few. And it's this. Number one, that like Augustine, like Luther, and like Wesley before us, that if there are any unbelievers here, that they would come to faith through the study and the preaching of this letter to the Romans. Whether you're a kid in here, and I love seeing so many kids who even told me that they were, they were excited in the back. I met with one who said they were excited about Romans and that they were in here to hear instead of being a Redeemer kid. So if you're a kid, I'm glad you're here. If you're a tween, if you're uh, a teen, a university student, uh, an, older, an older person, a younger person, if you don't yet know Christ, my prayer for you is that in this study, you will come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior. So I'm just going to say that from the front. That's my hope. That's my goal. That's what I prayed this morning, and that's what I'm going to continue to pray. And for the rest of us, for those who are believers, for those who follow Christ, whether you're a new believer or an older believer, I pray that this letter would transform both our minds. It has to transform our minds first, but then I hope and pray, and pray that it would transform our hearts, the way we think, the way we talk, the way we live, the way we love, the way we rebuke, the way we serve, the way we encourage. Would we grow in holiness? Would we look more like Christ? Would we love him more as a result of our in-depth study of this letter, of this epistle? And I want us to listen for ourselves. I know it's easy sometimes to listen for your child or for your spouse or for your friend, but listen for your own heart. No doubt Wesley thought he was a believer while on a mission trip. Luther, an extraordinary Monk, well-versed in theology and instructor of the Bible, was not yet a follower of Christ. A brilliant mind doesn't make you a Christian. Having lots of knowledge about the Bible doesn't make you a Christian. Years in the church doesn't make you a Christian. Having ministry experience doesn't make you a Christian. Children and youth and tweens coming from a Christian home, having Christian parents doesn't make you a Christian. So maybe you're here, maybe you think you're saved, but you're not. Maybe you think you're a Christian, but maybe you just grew up in that culture. 
You're not really saved. You've not personally placed your faith in Jesus Christ. Well, listen to Paul's teaching about how to be saved. And I hope at some point during this series, I hope you will be able to clearly answer this question. Am I really a Christian? I hope by the end of this time and even throughout that that question would be in your minds and that you would be able to answer that accurately, either yes or no. Youth. You guys just started Christianity Explained. I'm so excited about that study. Pastor Chris Lejeune's teaching it. He was saved in that study. And I pray that as you go through that study and as you hear the words from the epistle to the Romans, that you would be able to answer that question. Am I really a Christian? Well, maybe you're here today and you know you're not saved. You know you're not a Christian. Maybe you're just visiting. Maybe you're wanting to hear what the message of Christianity is all about. A friend brought you here. Or maybe you just don't know. You just don't know. Well, listen, please keep coming. You are most welcome to come. Please listen, learn, consider the teachings of the Bible, and consider what God is saying to you through his word. And then finally, for those of you that, that are believers, you have assurance of salvation. You know that God has saved you. Well, listen primarily for yourself. Listen for what God might be telling you. Listen for ways that God might be growing you in your relationship with God. Now, I received an email from a minister in another country just this past month. Now, I don't know if this is true. I don't know who this person is. It's probably spam, but th that's, that's okay. Uh, they claimed in their country that a certain book sold 2 million copies in one week. That's a lot of books, isn't it? 2 million copies in one week. And do you know what the book was called? How to Change Your Wife in 30 days. That was the title of the book. And you can imagine men just rushing, waiting in line for hours to go buy this book, to get this instruction on how they could change their wife in 30 days. But that same email said there's a bit of a problem there. There's a spelling error in the title. It was the wrong title. You can imagine the surprise when the men opened the book. The title was How to Change Your Life in 30 days. A little bit different there. After the correction, the email claims, remember, 2 million copies in one week. Now, again, this is probably spam. And the email says, how many copies were sold over the next month? Three. Again, I don't know if it's true, but there's some truth in that, isn't it? There's some truth in there. We're great at being sin detectives, among others. We're great at spotting the sin of other people, but we often ignore our own. So as we begin, let me give us a few introductory comments and a breakdown of the book. I want us to see the whole picture of what we're going to be studying. So I want to give some introductory comments and then an outline and an overview of the book. Well, the letter was written by the Apostle Paul. We'll see that. It was written during his third missionary journey. Now, Paul's ministry, for the most part, was a series of very long mission trips 
where he would go out, and this would be his pattern. He would travel. He would preach the gospel. Lord willing, people would be saved. He would train them up as disciples. Eventually, they could appoint elders, and at least one church would be started, and Paul would be jumping around from city to city in Asia Minor in areas not far from here, starting churches from city to city. Now, when Paul writes to Rome, Rome is not his final destination, Okay, he's headed to Spain. He says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. So he had a plan already to go to Jerusalem, and then he wanted to go all the way over to Spain. Now, he said, that's the plan, but I'm also planning a stopover in Romans. Now, we all know about stopovers here in Dubai, don't we? Like me, your first visit may have been a stopover, and people often visit us during one. They're going somewhere else, but they find out that they can stop over in Dubai for free. Have you ever had visitors visit you on a stopover? Yeah, many of us had. Most of us probably have. It's not their final destination, but they'd like to stop over for some intentional fellowship, maybe see the city, even come to the church, just hang out with you here. It's not unintentional. It's just not their final destination. Well, Paul is planning a very intentional stopover in Rome. He writes this letter to them around 56 or 57 AD. Paul's never been there. Paul didn't plant this church. We don't know how the church began. He wrote from Corinth, planning to return to Jerusalem first and letting the church in Rome know about three needs, okay? So he's going to let them know, hey, I'm going to Jerusalem. I want you to help the believers there. He says, hey, I'm going to come to you. I'm wanting you to help send me to Spain. It's a bit like a personal missionary prayer letter or update. And then he says, hey, thirdly, my friend Phoebe's coming. We'll see that in the beginning of chapter 16. Would you take care of her? Would you help her? Her. But there was a problem in Rome. So it wasn't just a visit. It wasn't just a, hey, you're doing well. It wasn't just help my friends. There was an actual problem in Rome. And we don't see that necessarily until towards the end of the book. But we need to know about it now. In the beginning of the book, there was a problem in Rome. And the problem was the Jews and the Gentiles were fractured. They were divided. They didn't, they didn't gather together. They didn't like each other. There was a divide. The Jewish believers were condemning the Gentile believers for eating meat. Now, that may sound like a crazy thing to quarrel about a cheeseburger, but it cut right at the heart of the Jewish law. And in return, the Gentiles were looking at the Jews and the Jewish believers and saying, hey, you guys are behind the times. You know, you guys are behind the times. You guys are still operating under the law. Jesus has come. And so there's this divide, and we see it come to a head later on in chapters 14 and 15. But you see it all throughout that that Paul's making a distinction, and yet at the same time he's saying, no, we're all in the same boat. To put it gently, they weren't getting along. It's a thread throughout the book, culminating, like I said, towards the end. Well, I love wearing this jacket. Do you guys like my jacket? I love it, but then I realized, wow, it's actually hot in a jacket. How do you do this, Dr. Brown, Pastor Chris? I'm trying to up my game. I see you guys. I'm inspired. But then now you got to sweat. And so we'll see if the jacket comes back. I thought, first sermon in Romans, I'm putting on a jacket. We're going to do this. I may never do it again. 
So this book, this book of Romans, this letter, it's theological and it's practical. It's this letter that encourages the Jews and Gentiles to get along and to accept one another. They needed to be pointed to God's work on the cross to remind themselves that the same Savior who died for them died for others, that they were and are brothers and sisters in Christ. My seminary professor, Dr. Jim Allman, says that all of Paul's letter culminates, climaxes in chapter 15, verse 7. This is after all of Paul's argument. Paul says, Paul writes, Therefore, therefore, because of all that I've said about Jews and Gentiles, all that I've said about salvation, all that I've said about faith, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So therefore, in light of everything I've said, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Other translations say accept one another or receive one another. The ESV says welcome one another. And my professor, Dr. Allman, says the main clause of the verse, to welcome one another, seems to summarize chapters 12 through the end of the book. And the second clause, as Christ has welcomed you, seems to summarize the first 11 chapters. And so there are many different ways we can break down the book of Romans. Uh, Many here in the room between our elders and professors, there's different ways that we and different ways that commentators and theologians have broken down the book of Romans. There's probably not one right way in how to do it. But my breakdown, influenced by my professor's teaching, uh, would be to break down Romans 15, 17 as a key verse and to say that the first 11 chapters, Romans 1 through 11, you could say that that's where God has welcomed us. God has accepted us. God has received us. And then chapters 12 to the end, we are to welcome others. We are to receive others. We are to accept others. Others. I'll expand on each section in a moment, but let me first state my working thesis, a longer thesis. I think I'll be probably reminding us of a shorter thesis as we go, but here's just a longer thesis uh, for the book of Romans. Here is how I would put it. God has welcomed us into his family through faith in the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ, enabled us to live together as his family, and equipped us to extend his welcome to others for the glory of God. In a sense, what you have in Romans is an explanation of gospel truths and then implications throughout and then at the end of those gospel truths. So just to shorten it, here's maybe a a shorter thesis and maybe one that I'll come back to is simply, God has welcomed us in his family and so we are to welcome others into his family to the glory of God. We're God has welcomed us into his family, so we are to welcome others, both who are in already and those who are not into his family, to the glory of God. Again, many different ways you could break it down. In the first 11 chapters, Paul reminds his Roman readers how Christ welcomed them into the family. And then because Christ has welcomed us, then you see starting in chapter 12, some more specific implications of that teaching and more application that because Christ has welcomed us, we are to welcome others. We are to live together as a family of believers, brothers and sisters in Christ who are marked by unity and who are marked by love and grace. Now, there are other ways you could summarize Romans. One way to do it is in the form of a question. How can a holy God save a sinful man without compromising his perfection? 
Salvation by faith alone, through grace alone, by Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. That could be a fitting summary. You could look at Romans 1. Many look at Romans 1, verses 16 and 17 as the key verses in the book. At the end of that, you see a quote from Habakkuk, that the righteous shall live by faith. You could say that Romans is about the righteousness of God. You could say Romans is about justification by faith. And all those would be right. Though I think my thesis, informed by Dr. Allman, takes into account the entirety of the 16 chapters and brings it together. So bracketed by an introduction and an application, there are five major sections to the book. So you'll see a slide there. First is an introduction. You won't see that on there, but that's the first 17 verses. That's what we're going to work towards these first four weeks, including today, is to go through the introduction. It's a long introduction and one of the reasons for that, I think, is because Paul has never been to Rome, and he has a lot to say before he gets into the meat of his letter. So that's the first 17 verses. And then at the end, there's a conclusion, which really starts somewhere probably in chapter 15, but uh, a good clean break might be 16. That's a conclusion. So five sections, four under that first major header, God has welcomed us. First, we see condemnation, chapters 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20. Then we see justification, chapter 3, verses 21 on through chapter 5. You'll, we'll see sanctification, chapters 6 through 8. We'll see uh, explanation, chapters 9 through 11. And that's that first header, God has welcomed us. Under the second header, you really have application, and we can break that down into a number of different ways. And we'll do that when we finally get there in year 2034. 12 through 15 is application, and it's beautiful and it's wonderful. And then the conclusion. So starting, let me just break those down a little more. As you see them, starting with condemnation, Paul reminds the Romans that all Jews and all Gentiles have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Right? There's not one group that's above another group. There's not one group that's uh, more holy than another group. There's not one group that escapes condemnation and not another group. He says all of us, and he says the Jews and the Gentiles and all of you, all of us are condemned on our own. That We've all sinned. Later on, he says, and the wages of that sin is death. So we have bad news. We have some encouraging news in this, this introduction, and then pretty quickly we get into some bad news. We see lots of condemnation. But then we have good news. Romans 3, verse 21 through chapter 5, we have justification. Justification means to be declared righteous. And we see that there's good news, that there's a way that we can be righteous, that there's a way that we could stand before a holy God and be welcomed, to be accepted, to be received. And that's through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we'll see that through chapter 5. And then we have sanctification. You see that chapter 6 or so through chapter 8, that great magnificent chapter. We see that we are to grow in Christ. Condemnation, justification, Paul doesn't stop there. There's this act of growing in holiness. We're not saved to sit and that's it. No. No, we're saved to, to grow in our relationship with God. We're saved to love and adore God. We're saved to look more and more like him. We fight the good fight and we fight it to finish the race. And then remember, I mentioned the division between the Jews and the Gentiles. Uh, there's this division Paul is addressing. Well, then naturally, a question that would come up is, what about God's promises to Israel? Are they null and void? 
What would that tell us about God? Well, Paul will have much to say about this and will give us an explanation in chapters 9 through 11. Both the Jews and Gentiles ultimately are both saved by faith. Furthermore, the purposes of God, we'll see that they don't contradict any promises to Israel. So the first 11 chapters show that we are all welcome into the family of God. Jew, Gentile, man, woman, boy, girl, Greek, barbarian, whether you're from Kenya, Canada, or Calcutta, all are welcome. Every single soul made in the image of God walking on the face of the earth is welcomed, accepted, and received if they would come to Christ by faith. So all of Romans is really application. So I don't want to divide. I don't want you to think it only starts in chapter 12. There's application all throughout the book of Romans, but starting especially chapter 12, verse 1 and following, you see that because God welcomes us, okay, what are we to do now? How are we to live together as a family? Which is of huge relevance for us as a church of many nations, isn't it? How do we come together as family? Different cultural norms, different backgrounds, different experiences, different stories. How do we be a church? And so we're going to see that throughout and then more in those, those earlier chapters. How are we to live as family? So you could say Romans is the Bible in a sense condensed into 16 theologically packed chapters. Within its confines, we learn about the gospel, justification, sanctification, glorification, redemption, propitiation, predestination, foreknowledge, election, the law, adoption, hope, spiritual gifts, faith, and more. Did you get all that? Well, that's what Romans is about. It's about all those things. Romans is is not about everything, but it is about a lot of things. And we're going to get to see that in this great letter. And with all that said, we have one verse today. At that pace, it will take us as as long as Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones to finish the book, but we'll speed up a little bit. We've intentionally done some introductory work today. Okay, let's take a look. Verse 1. Open up your Bibles. It's in the bulletin. You have the whole chapter there. So if you just have that even later on and you don't have a Bible, you can read the context of all of chapter 1. But let me just read chapter 1, verse 1 for us. And let me give us a short three-part outline for how to look at chapter 1. This sermon entitled, The Messenger. Okay? Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul. A servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Let me just read it again. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Three-part outline today, short, easy to remember, who Paul was, number one, Who Paul is, number two, and what Paul does, number three. Who Paul was, who Paul is, what Paul does. I've already told my family to memorize this and remember this outline. Easy to remember. I hope it helps as we get this book started on the messenger. First, let's start with who Paul was. Now, letter writing practices were different back then. Today, we address the reader first, don't we? Dear Maria, dear Gloria, dear Joanne, dear John. Today, we address the reader first, but in the ancient world, you reversed that order. Paul, you name yourself Paul, 
Paul is the author. If you're new to the Bible, he used to be named Saul and harmed the church. You could read about him later today in the early chapters of the book of Acts. As a Pharisee, as a Jewish religious leader, as one zealous for the law, Saul's mission was to destroy the church. One man has called Saul the Darth Vader of the ancient world. The Sith Lord, the commander-in-chief of the Imperial Army with the goal of tracking down each and every last Jedi. Now, if you don't know or understand Star Wars very well, like me, I have no idea what I'm talking about right now. My family does. Now, that's okay. The point is that Saul's mission was to end Christianity. Saul's mission was to track down every last Christian and to stop this from spreading. He approved, he stood there approving of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. We might think this letter was written by that man. The greatest treasure of Christian doctrine in the Bible, this letter that has transformed lives and saved souls, was written by him, the great persecutor of the church. On one level, this sounds outlandish. But consider this, Saul, now Paul, the great persecutor, the one who hated Christians, but now was saved by Christ. You would think that this man would know a thing or two about grace, wouldn't he? You bet. Saul on the road to Damascus, Saul was actually going up towards Syria on the road to Damascus with an express purpose of persecuting and harming Christians. But on the road to Damascus, God literally stopped him dead in his tracks. God appeared to him, first physically blinding him, but then unblinding his heart to see and to savor Jesus, to see that Jesus was the Savior. The very one he was persecuting was the Savior of the world. And God opened his eyes, the eyes of his heart, and God transformed him. God's man would be that man the great persecutor of the church, now the great church planter of the church. Who was Paul? Well, he was first Saul. Saul the sinner. Saul the persecutor. Saul the hater of Christians. But the recipient of much grace. The recipient of much grace and love from God. He would be now a man on a mission. Isn't Paul a fitting author for a book like this? Well, that's who Paul was. Now, number two, who Paul is. Let's look at that, who Paul is. Paul, at the time of the writing of this letter, who is Paul? That's number two, who Paul is. Again, look at verse one. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. The first word Paul uses to describe himself is servant. When you get asked about yourself, is this the first word that comes to mind that you describe yourself with? Have you ever used it? No, I don't often share many Greek words in my sermons, but you know what? During Romans, I'm going to do it often. I want us to learn some concepts. I want us to learn some, some words, even some Greek words. And right here, the word translated servant is the Greek word doulos. It comes right after paulos. It comes the very first thing that Paul writes about himself is this word doulos. It's actually the word that means slave or at least a bondservant. I don't know why we change it in translations, maybe because it sounds kind of odd to say a slave of Christ or it has different connotations today. But the point remains, Paul doesn't use the normal word for serve or servant. That's the word diakonos, 
We have 15 great deacons and deaconesses here at Redeemer. That comes from diakonos here. That comes from servant or to serve. But here we have a different word. Paul doesn't use that word. Paul uses the word doulos. But it wasn't a forced bondage or a forced slavery. This was joyous. This was Paul's great joy to be a slave or a bondservant. This makes us think of bondservants in the Old Testament. So Deuteronomy chapter 15 talks about this, that when a slave or a servant completes their time of service, they didn't have to leave. Some chose to leave, but some wanted to stay. They loved the family that they served with. And so the idea of a bondservant is you would take, they would take your ear and nail your ear to the doorpost, signifying your commitment to that family. We can, you can read about that in Deuteronomy chapter 15 later on. Paul says, I'm like that. I have willingly submitted as a bondservant, even as a slave to Christ. That's how Paul describes himself, joyfully and willingly serving Christ. There's a sense of permanence there. Paul's saying, I'm 100% Christ. I'm a slave of Christ. This Christ who left heaven came to earth just a few decades earlier. God became flesh and Jesus, fully God and fully man, was born without sin and was killed on a wooden cross only to rise from the dead on the third day. It was Paul's joy to serve Christ. Paul loved it to follow in his sufferings, to be beaten, to be battered, to be mocked and forsaken. That was Paul's main identity. He wants you to know. He wants the Roman church to know. He wants the world to know that he's a slave. Only after that does he mention his identity. Only after he mentions his identity does he share his office. So back to verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. Before we talk about the role, before he mentions it, did you notice that Paul didn't choose it? He doesn't say, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, chose on my own to be an apostle. Or, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, because of how good I was, God chose me to be an apostle. No, Paul had nothing to do with this. God called him. Paul wants us to get that straight from the beginning. Apostle comes from the word apostello. It's the Greek word to send, apo, to send forth. An apostle is one who is sent forth, who's sent forth with a message. They take that message with them. But it was more than that. So to be an apostle, Jesus didn't check your CV. Right? We know that the original 12 apostles, Jesus wasn't choosing just the smartest or the most well-known in the community. Jesus didn't look at his CV. He didn't look at your life. He didn't look at your brilliance. He didn't look at your education. But two things had to happen. One, you had to see Jesus with your eyes, and Jesus had to call you to be an apostle. Maybe sometimes today you hear people talk about apostolic gifts. And what they mean is a lowercase a, or at least what I mean that they're saying is a lowercase a apostle, someone who maybe is gifted at going into pioneering contexts and church planting, and doing evangelism. But what Paul's talking about here, and what we talk when we mean the 12 disciples or apostles, is a capital A apostle, and there are no more of those. So capital A apostles saw Jesus with their eyes and was called by Jesus for this ministry. And so even though Paul wasn't with the 12, Paul was there on the road to Damascus, and Jesus revealed himself to Paul. So Paul is a servant, and Paul is a, a capital A apostle. Well, what does Paul do? So we've seen who Paul was. We see who Paul is. What does Paul do? That's the third point. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. Here it is. 
set apart for the gospel of God. The idea of being set apart is taking something and making it holy. We know being an apostle meant he sent forth. Now we find out that he was sent forth with a specific message, not just any message and not a message that he made up, but the gospel. And the gospel comes from the, the word evangel, which means a good message. It means a good report or good news. It's, it's great news. And Paul says, I'm a servant. He says, I'm, a, I'm an apostle. But, and then I'm set apart for that message, the evangel, this good report, this good news. Paul's a servant, and he goes forth heralding this good news. So this is a day with no BBC, no internet. What was the media? It was heralds. And so a herald would go into one city or go into one town center and would shout out the news, the good news, say a military victory for their army. And that herald would go in and would shout out the good news to those in the town center. They would go back home and they would spread that news. And then that herald would go into the next city and would spread out and say that news. And people would go and take it out to their homes and the news would spread. Paul's saying, that's what I'm set apart for. I'm not sharing news about a military victory, but I'm sharing even greater news, the gospel, the good news. That while we're all condemned, while we're all dead in our sin, there's good news that Jesus died on the cross and he rose from the dead, taking our place. That he is our substitute. The only message that leads to salvation. So friends, I ask you today, even in the very first sermon, I said this is my prayer throughout the whole series, but here in the very first sermon, have you turned to Christ Jesus to save you? Have you placed your faith in him? Have you believed in him as the only Savior, the only God? There's no other path which leads to God. If you haven't, I pray you would believe during this series, but even today. Well, again, Paul's ministry is clear. Preach the gospel, disciple new believers, train leaders, start a church, go into the next city, hit, hit repeat. This is what he does. Paul was even eager to do this in Rome. Some argued Paul was afraid. Why? Well, because the Romans, the Romans, they were the intellectual elite. Paul, you're just afraid to go. You're afraid to go because uh, you're afraid of the Romans. Christianity just won't match up to the Roman elite. And look, look at you, Paul. You're on your third missionary journey. You've traveled all around the world. You've joined the Million Mile Club of traveling in those days. You've been all around the major cities of the Roman Empire, but you haven't made it to Rome. And Paul says, I'm not afraid. Chapter 1, verse 16, what does he say? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Paul's not ashamed. Paul's not afraid. And he tells us in chapter 15, flip over there. If you have a Bible, I want you to see this. I might have this verse on the screen too. Verse 20, I want you to see this. But the following verses in chapter 15 will also be helpful for you to see in your Bibles. Paul says, I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Here's the reason. Don't assume. Right? It's never good to assume someone's motives, is it? Never good to assume someone's heart, is it, without asking. Paul says, I'm not afraid. I'm going to answer now, and I'm going to say this. I have not come to Rome because of this. Verse 20, I make it my ambition, right, his, his ambition, his, his life goal, his, his, his hope, everything. I make it my ambition to preach the gospel. See, he's not afraid to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. So they assume maybe, hey, Paul's afraid. He's afraid to come to Rome. And Paul says, just the opposite. I want to go to places that have no, no knowledge about Jesus at all. 
You see how they got it backwards. Paul's not afraid to go to Rome. He knows that the gospel is the power to save Jew and Gentile. So chapter 15 gives us the answer. Paul says, I want to come. Actually, in chapter 1, we see Paul says this. He says, uh, brothers, do not be unaware. I have often intended to come to you, but have thus far been prevented in order that, that, that to see a faithful, fruitful harvest among you, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. He wants to come to Rome, but that wasn't his priority. That wasn't his ministry. He even said, I planned trips. God won't let me go. The point, the gospel had come to Rome. The gospel had come to Rome. And Paul's mission was to go where there was no church. He's not afraid. In fact, he believes the church could help him. Back in chapter 1, verse 1 again, let me just read it. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. So to summarize or outline, Paul was Saul, the persecutor. Paul is a slave and an apostle, and God has set him apart for the work of the gospel. You see all that that we got just in one verse. That's why Lloyd-Jones could do 372 of these. Romans is packed. Romans is an incredible book. And if I wasn't sweating so much, I'd go on for another hour. There's so much to say. Listen to this from Martin Luther. Romans is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word. That's, that's a big challenge there. But also to occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. It can never be read or pondered too much. And the more it is dealt with, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. That's when the man whose life was transformed by the book and then transformed the world through the Reformation. Friend, have you studied this letter at length? Have you read it over and over again? If not, that's okay. This is a good time to start. It's a good place to start. We're starting with this book as a church, so you could start it individually as well. Start reading it regularly. Make notes, make observations, write down your questions. Meditate on it, memorize parts of it. Chapter one's a good place to start. Chapter eight is magnificent if you put those to heart. I love that the Gulf Theological Seminary uh, spiritual life class is memorizing Romans 12 together. That's a great place to look. You can take the heart of the gospel in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 31 and memorize those or just take key verses from the book, but meditate on it, memorize parts of it. And let's prayerfully read ahead even for the following Sundays. You have that sermon calendar, that sermon card. It'll tell you what's going to be preached the very next week. And let's apply it to our lives. Let's talk about it at lunch. You go to the food court today. Let's talk about what we've learned. Let's talk about the text at lunch today with your friends throughout the week, within our family units at the dinner table. Let's not let this opportunity go, this letter that's transformed so many lives. Let's not waste it. Let's not let it go without letting it transform our hearts and souls. Let's do the hard work Luther has said, to know it as well as we can. And may it be precious as we go about this task. Let's pray now together. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I find myself so excited about this. Father, we just pray that as a church we'd be so excited about this monumental letter. The whole Bible is your inspired word. We've preached through many parts of it, Father, and it has transformed our lives. We pray the same for Romans. Lord, we look to these great heroes of the faith who were saved through reading this 
letter or hearing it read or reading about it. Oh, Father, would that be true of us as a church? Would we follow in the footsteps of Augustine and of Luther and of Wesley and of many others? Would we not forget these words? Lord, would our minds be transformed? It has to start there, Father. Would our minds learn and know? And would that travel from our minds, would it travel down into the depths of our hearts? Transform our church one member at a time. May the Spirit steer in us a desire to love you more. Lord, would we remember often, would we remember daily, even hourly, that you have welcomed us into the family? Would we go about welcoming others in the family and into the family to the glory of God? Father, would we put away the things of this world? Would we put away the things that are going to burn? Would we put away the things that we can't take us to heaven? And would we, as a church, focus on souls? Would we focus on encouraging others in the church and reaching out to those out of the church? Oh, Father, please help us. Please help us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.